You're listening to Democracy's Future, the Fordham Law podcast about the big crises and questions about democracy around the world. I'm Zephyr Teachout. And I'm Julie Sook. We're both professors at Fordham Law School, and this season, we're exploring the crises that are making the future of democracy uncertain, at home and abroad. Our topic for today is whether AI threatens democracy. The Senate Artificial Intelligence Insight Forum was convened at the U.S. Capitol in late October, and the president just issued an executive order on safe, secure, and trustworthy development and use of artificial intelligence. On November 1st, nearly 30 countries and the European Union attended the AI Safety Summit in the United Kingdom. At a moment when the power of AI is on the minds of many, we invited a guest who has been a leading expert voice in these debates on AI's threats to democracy. Dr. Sarah E. Kreps is an American political scientist and an Air Force veteran who teaches tech policy and law at Cornell and directs the Tech Policy Institute there. She is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and has written five very well-received books on drones, military financing, and post-Cold War military interventions. And she has been training her intellect on AI for the last five years. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Julie and Zephyr. It's great to be here. Dr. Krebs, we are so lucky to have you, particularly at this time. I was looking over your really impressive resume, your writing, your work, and I see that in 2019, long before it was the center of the public conversation, you were writing about AI. And two years ago, you were writing about chat GPT-2 or GPT-2. So you've had this real career in looking at military technologies and foreign affairs. What brought you to focus on AI? I have been working on AI and chat GPT before it was cool. Uh, And what drew me to it is, I think, really the thread of my research uh, really over the last two decades, which is the role of new technologies in public policy and democracy and national security. And I think looking back, that probably does have something to do with the fact that I served in the Air Force and I worked on advanced radar and satellite systems. So I was firsthand developing those systems. And what I saw as a practitioner was just that technologists tend to develop these new things without giving a lot of thought as to the broader context in which they're being used. And then on the the public policy side, we don't really understand the technologies. And as these new technologies are coming online, there is this big struggle to think about and understand, are these ethical? Are these legal? Does the public want them? And so I came at these new technologies from the practitioner side, but then as an academic, was looking at the rise of drone warfare, you know, 2009, 10, 11, before the public was very aware that drones were being used because it was a a CIA program. And policymakers were trying to figure out how should they be thinking about this? The international legal community was trying to think through this. 
And so I was writing in that space of drones. And then I was shifting a little bit in the 2000 teens to kind of these questions, especially after the 2016 election, about social media, new media, how that can expose the country to new threats. And it was around that time, 2018, I went to a presentation by OpenAI, and they were talking about this new tool. I thought, wow, this is really amazing. This tool, this algorithm can create new text and it can do this at scale and it can make Russian speakers sound like native English speakers. And what will that do to our elections? What will that do to our democracy? And I thought this was a really important question that was going to become a bigger concern. And I wanted to be able to wrap my head around it to try to help policymakers navigate it. So when you talk about the creation of these technologies with your experience in the Air Force, do you think that it's really that those who are creating the technologies aren't thinking about how others might use it? Or or do they have a plan for uh, keeping it contained to the use for which it's developed? So Julie, this is a big question of mine and actually is the topic of a new book I'm working on right now because, you know, I think we see, we have seen this through so many in inventions and innovations over decades, if not centuries. Um, I was recently, and actually we're in Nobel Peace Prize season. So Alfred Nobel, it was an innovator. He created uh, explosives and detonators, mm-hmm. but he was kind of, he was just a scientist. He, his head is down. He's kind of a quirky guy. He's developing this new thing and he develops, 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 take these steps, takes these steps. And then at the end of his career, he's like, oh my gosh, I gave armies and countries a way to kill each other. I guess I better do something about it by creating a peace prize. But you see that over and over. You, you see that with, with the Manhattan Project and the scientists that are involved. Or with Oppenheimer. With Oppenheimer. People saw Oppenheimer this summer, right? And it's like, yes. how did you not see that coming? Or how did Mark Zuckerberg not see how social media could be misused by foreign actors? And I yeah. think that's a, a super important puzzle. And I think part of this is answered by... I have a a few arguments in the book, but one of them is that, you know, science is a very iterative process. You're taking steps and the knowledge is accumulating. And I think they don't think about this broader political and ethical context. I think they think, can this be done? They're not asking, should it be done? So when we're talking about AI, um, speaking of iterative processes, uh, let's just start with some real basics. What, what is the scope of uh, AI that you are interested in us focusing on as a policy matter? Well, it's a good question. And I think that the, you know, this recent piece I wrote for the Brookings Institution, uh, it kind of calls out the executive order, which you had mentioned as kind of a hodgepodge grab bag of like, well, we're going to do this. We have these eight principles. And, you know, I think some of that is just endemic to the issue of AI, which is it's a huge grab bag of lots of different things. We have, you know, medical robotics. We have, you know, a lot of people now because of this consumer facing technology, think of chat GPT. That's one aspect of it. But 
you know, one of the other connections between AI and my work on drones was that one of the big concerns about drones is that they would become autonomous. So they would use algorithms for targeting. That's also AI. So AI just kind of gets thrown around as like a big term. uh, And I think all of these different aspects are important, but I think they're very different societal questions and uh, have very different than implications and regulatory considerations. So so you mentioned this Brookings article, and I want to use it because I think it's a really helpful way to frame the conversation. There's a a meta question, which is what are we talking about when we're talking about AI, but also how should we think about it? Because I think the way in which both the executive order and um, the uh, European initiative are received is often in a dreamlike stance that there's a sort of a a mass of approaches, a mass of issues, and the effect of this overwhelming flood of of, uh, potential responses makes it hard to think, frankly. And so you propose a way to approach thinking about the large bucket of AI, which then leads to some subsidiary ways of thinking about it. What's the proposal that you lay out in the Brookings piece? Right. So we were we spent a lot of time and um, I co-researched and wrote this with a PhD student, um, Adi Rao. And so we spent a lot of time kind of thinking, what is AI and why? We, we know that there are so many calls to regulate AI. And as people who study AI, we thought, well, what do we actually mean when we talk about regulating AI? So we came up with something that we think cleverly we labeled the CETO loop. So scope, existing regulation, tool, and organization. And so what we wanted to do is bring structure to a pretty amorphous and unwieldy conversation about AI regulation. So scope is first, what are the specific risks and regulatory problems that arise from a particular AI? Second is, are there existing regulations that might cover the concerns we have uh, because there's no reason to be reinventing wheels. And then third is, okay, we have a lot of different ways to think about regulation. Uh, One of the ones we call out in this article for Brookings is um, we make light of Italy's attempt to ban ChatGPT. (laughs) There are certain types of bans that work, um, but generative AI is not one of those context where a ban is going to work because this technology is that the genie's out of the bottle. But so there are a lot of different tools that regulators can look at, taxes, voluntary rules. So that's the T and tool. And then fourth is the organization. So who should do this? The United States is really complicated because we have so many different agencies. But then that becomes the sort of the last part of the puzzle is what who should actually do this regulation. So, so Sarah, does that mean then, though, that you actually don't think we should be talking about this as AI regulation, qua AI regulation, but rather basket of harms uh, and distinct sets of baskets of harms and move away from the, even the model of the, um, uh, of 
AI regulation as a category? I do think we need to get more kind of sectoral in our, you know, more specific in our thinking about the AI application we're concerned about and the context, and then a sector specific form of regulation, because otherwise I just think we're going to, it, it will be unwieldy and uh, it won't actually achieve any, any of its intended purpose. I mean, one of my concerns is that the unwieldy nature of it then lends itself to a kind of political capture by the big actors in the industry. Um, that in as much as the public feels like it is not a graspable, tangible um, threat, but rather an infinite basket of threats, then there's a tendency to turn it over to existing industry actors who will functionally self-regulate in partnership with government. Yes. And I think that's something that uh, you're not alone in worrying about. And I think in some real way, that's a risk of these kind of AI startups, which are not really startups anymore, you know, like OpenAI, partnering with big tech. So it's kind of a win-win for these groups because, you know, OpenAI now gets the benefit of, you know, Microsoft's huge experience in dealing with government and 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 Amazon and Anthropic, like these companies that are now the smaller ones that are now partnering with big tech, you can see how there's a real win-win for them, but a way in which that does risk, I think, regulatory capture as well. There's one other feature of the Brookings article that I, I just wanted to highlight because it is something that I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, you would say is an across-the-board concern which is that you you mention that the that the responses focus on what you call surface level issues not addressing the data center the hardware or even upstream commodity nodes in the stack now i i suspect this is in part driven by your long experience in um looking at the foreign policy space and technology in the foreign policy space. But can you talk a little bit about that, the sort of the forgotten parts of the stack in the responses to date? Yeah, I would say that the White House should be forgiven for setting aside some aspects of this because it's a really hard problem. And it's so, you know, these supply chains in this stack is so so complex. So they are taking aim at some of it with the export controls when it comes to kind of the AI and chips. Uh, so there's an awareness there, I would say, but that's different than a regu- that's different than trying to regulate it. Um, I think it's just a really complicated uh, picture. And, and but I, you know, and, and I think looking and comparing with uh, with nuclear, which I'm doing as part of this book project, it took years to figure out and not on the initial side of command and control, a lot of that, you know, there was a real, obviously with 1945 and not just the test of the nuclear weapon, but the use of it twice, it was pretty clear that there was some urgency in terms of of civilian control of nuclear weapons. But then in terms of broader regulation, international regulation, arms control, that took years to figure out. So I'm, uh, I do think that we're in, what I'm trying to, you know, communicate with this Brookings piece, which 
is a shorter version of a white paper that we wrote, is that we first need to be framing the problem. And I think that's where we are right now, is what is even this technology that we're talking about? Because we can't do, we can't meaningfully regulate it if we aren't yet in a position to understand it. It does seem like one of the harms, and if we go back to your proposal, that we really try to isolate within that basket of harms, each harm, and then find uh, existing law or new regulation to address the harm. Uh, And one, I think, which Zephyr mentioned is concentration of power. Uh, What you focus on in your piece in the Journal of Democracy, How AI Threatens Democracy, uh, is all the ways in which generative AI affects our public discourse. Uh, Specifically, uh, I think you did an earlier study with a bunch of colleagues about how generative AI can create all these letters to politicians, and then the politicians just don't know if those letters are expressing the real interests of their constituents or uh, or not. Uh, And then on the constituent and voter side, uh, we do not know what information to trust because it's so easy for generative AI to create information that's false. Uh, So there's an erosion of trust. Uh, And you've also talked about how this not knowing what's real or fake will affect rulemaking processes in the context of the administrative state. How is this a threat posed by generative AI? In in many ways, you might say that we've always had the risk of fraud because of the power of certain interest groups, uh, the power of some corporations to be able to just spend a lot of money on replicating things and then sending them uh, in ways that are fraudulent and not true. And I want to just understand how generative AI either multiplies the threat or makes the threat uh, a different kind uh, that requires a different kind of regulatory response? It's a great question. And the book I had written on social media and international relations focused at the outset on this question of, is this new wine in old bottles? Yeah. Because, you know, when I first started presenting this work of, you know, foreign actors using social media to micro target certain demographics and especially older members of the audience would say, well, we've always had propaganda. This is nothing new. Right. And so I had to really think about that. What And I think that that question is relevant and the answer, frankly, is relevant in this context, too, which is speed and scale. So what I think was harder to do in a, an older kind of analog context was reach mass audiences. For example, when I think about Cold War propaganda, it was really hard for the Soviets to get their propaganda They couldn't get their propaganda into U.S. news networks because there were gatekeepers and there was regulation on this about whether you could, you know, buy Pravda on the the street corner, maybe in like, you know, the East Village you could or some isolated pockets, almost news speakeasies. But this wasn't something you could access. And now we have a context where there are no gatekeepers. Anyone can post anything. And And that was true with social media and the Internet. And then what amplifies that is generative AI, where now, again, what alarmed me about these new generative AI was that one of the differences or one of the ways that you could tell that these ads from 2016 were not authentic is that they had little grammatical errors, 
like missing articles in the language that you could kind of parse were the indicators or the hallmarks of someone who is not a native speaker. And generative AI eliminates all of those markers. Uh, and now it can do it at scale. And one of the things that I think alarms has alarmed me even more as, as I've talked to groups in government about this problem. So I was talking to a group um, in the executive uh, or OMB, so Office of Management and Bud- Budget, and they said, well, what, you know, how do we handle, for example, if the EPA has an open comment line? And you know, the concern I raise is, look, you can have one person uh, now generate huge amounts of content, and it looks like thousands of voices. And now not only these aren't these aren't repeated, it's not repeated content, which would give you the sense that this is just one person kind of using a, a template, but these all look different. And they said, well, w- you know, what are the ways around this? I said, well, you can, there are tools that are being developed that can identify generative AI, but they're not 100%. He said, essentially, if they're not 100%, that's go- and they'll say it's 90%. They are not legally allowed to eliminate the ten percent because that's not democratic. Huh. So, because they say now they're you know maybe those ten percent are not randomly distributed. They they would risk eliminating the voice of citizens. And so this is a this, these kinds of concerns I think are very real, and I think they're difficult to do with technologies that are not these new technologies. So. Sarah, when you're talking about notice and comment rulemaking, so a, a central part of the administrative state, a mechanism through which agencies broadly gather responses to proposed rules, I mean, does this suggest to you then just a radical reconsideration of the mechanisms of gathering responses given the nature of modern technology? I absolutely think it does. I, uh, in some of the other work I've done, recommend really rethinking how members of Congress hear from their constituents. Uh, And I think that applies to the administrative state. Why not hold town halls where you hear from actual citizens? And I know that those have their... there's no silver bullet, but I think what we what we recommend is is to try to triangulate, you know, solicit feedback in different ways, but don't now assume that this public commentary is going to be your one stop shop for understanding the the public view. So just to put a fine point on it, and these are not necessarily inconsistent, but they are inconsistent in their focus. One kind of response, which I might even argue is probably the dominant liberal response post-2016, is to try to hunt down mechanisms for disinformation and fakes, identify where the, the, the falsity or duplication lies. And another kind of response is to actually change the, the feedback mechanisms themselves. And again, those are not incompatible, but it strikes me that your re- response in this area of AI is 
greater focus on the latter. <laughs> uh, focus on changing the, me- the feedback mechanisms while also trying to figure out mechanisms for identifying the truthiness of, of content. Is that fair? I uh, appreciate you putting that fine a point on it. I, I, I'm not sure I would have put myself in that latter camp. Um, I see myself as kind of, you have a lot of tools in the toolbox. One of them should be to try to smoke out the falsity. Got it. Yes. But but where that ran up into some headwinds was talking with policymakers who said that you can't always do that in a democratic way. So would you even say that there's a tension between the two approaches? Uh, And obviously, uh, you you seem to think we should be doing both. So one is develop and invest in uh, the science necessary to be able to distinguish between the fakes and the authentics. Uh, But uh, another is just turn towards uh, a different model of democracy, more direct democracy. Uh, It sounded like when you mentioned the town halls, it also reminded me um, I have children in high school, and I think because of the rise of chat GPT, they're doing a lot more in-class writing with pen and paper uh, rather than, you know, papers that you write at home on your computer. And um, and it does seem that one response, I mean, the extreme form of it might be, we were chuckling a little bit when you said that Italy just banned uh, chat GPT. Uh, but and I, another way of putting it is if we start changing the feedback mechanisms so that we don't rely on these technologies, uh, that's a different investment uh, and uh, perhaps might address the uh, democracy concerns, uh, although certainly then you'd have to worry about who has access to the uh, forms of direct democracy, the face-to-face meetings, the town halls. Uh, is that And you'd have to think of ways of um, making that more democratic, but but I wondered if you th- um, were suggesting that there, uh, that in making the choice between one approach or another, that uh, taking one might undermine the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of really great insights there, Julie. So uh, I like the example, or the yes, of of more in class assignments. If you're worried about the technology, maybe doing take home papers is something that you need to rethink. And I would say that that some of our suggestions of kind of town halls are a democracy version of that. Yeah. Well, one thing that I was thinking, though, is that if you're really worried about uh, generative AI, say in the context of elections and voting, um, you might think that uh, you really want to limit our path towards absentee voting uh, and absentee voting through new technologies, Uh, that if you thought that there was no real way of figuring out which votes are real and which votes are uh, fake or which kinds of participation are real and fake, um, you might try to move towards the in-person model. Uh, But obviously, uh, many the ways in which we regulate remote uh, has impacts on those who, who are less likely Uh, to be able to make uh, their voices heard in the context of in-person election day um, show up, uh, and not just election day, town hall, other forms of deliberative democracy. Uh, So so the question really is, like, uh, 
I mean, I could definitely see what the threat is with AI, but it seems like our attempts to then uh, overcome it might have other effects on democracy. And I was wondering if there are more examples of that. I, I'm now channeling Sarah's Brookings paper and saying, Julie, you're, you're conflating two different forms of threat. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, right. And that that there was this a kind of slippage. You know, there's one question is about responsiveness in um, to elected officials. A separate mm-hmm. question is about comments. And then you right. moved it over to voting, which is, uh, you know, actual voting and threats around fraud in voting, which I don't see as being a maybe I'm wrong, but I. No, I feel pretty confident saying it's fundamentally different in kind than, um, say, fake comments or fake letters. I'm glad you said that, Zephyr, because I was trying to think, has this been a blind spot in my thinking or is that just not something we have a lot to worry about, but that's not one of the things. And I, I think I'm in your camp on on that particular aspect or question, which is I think voting might be a separate, it's an important issue, but maybe a little bit separate from this, from how I've been thinking about this. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, I was using the example of voting largely to just get at, there's there are problems on getting feedback, but I also thought there were problems from the standpoint of citizens and voters. Like we don't know what information to rely on. Well, well, that's the one we haven't talked about. Right. Yeah. And and is harder than say we can change notice and comment rulemaking. We can right. figure out right. methods of you know polling people by lot. Right. Uh, you know town halls. But but the 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 particular threat that um, I think Jonah Peretti, when he shut down BuzzFeed News, said he was arguing that the future of content, um, and this is informational content that could influence voting, the future of content was going to be in um, generative AI. Um, Sarah, do you see that as a threat? And if so, that's a specific category. What are we going to do about it? It is. Yeah, no, I guess what, if I may just take a quick step back on the things that are threats and that we can do something about. Um, and so I, I just wanted to flag something that Facebook announced yesterday, which was that they will be banning political campaigns from using generative AI in their ads. So Google did that recently. And the reason I bring that up is that these are really big stakeholders in this whole, you know, (laughs) throwing buzzwords around, you know, like this whole ecosystem. But it's true that Facebook was the locus of previous attempts to, you know, mislead Americans. And back to your question, Julie, about how do we even know what to think anymore? And if we can't trust anything, then we're going to trust nothing well, Facebook is trying to get around that by saying that to curb political misinformation and that phenomenon of, well, we just don't know what to believe anymore, they're going to uh, ban generative AI in their political advertisements. Can you help me understand why you would um, say Italy can't ban chat GPT because the technology is out of the bottle? but Facebook can ban generative AI in ads. What is the clear line between those two? Um, I think this is hard to 
I think you can. So if you, yeah, how can you ban generative AI? I think it's a lot easier to do visually than it is, you know, if you think about an ad, a visual, you know, can can you, you know, if you've ever seen like a trailer for the movie Avatar, like that's all CGI, <laughs> like computer generated imagery. And so it's a lot, or you, we've seen deep fakes, you know, the Barack Obama deep fakes, or there was one, what, the early one in the Biden, Biden, yeah, uh, Pelosi. Yeah, they've all been deep faked because there are millions of images of them online. And that comes back to our, you know, what is AI? What's a machine learning? What is machine learning? Well, if you have thousands of images, it's really easy to create a deep fake. So the DeSantis I believe it was a DeSantis campaign that had run, or it was against DeSantis early in this campaign season, a, a, a generative AI ad. Those are relatively easy, I think, to identify. I think it would be it would be much harder, let's say. Would it be harder for smaller camp or elections in which you don't have well-known figures where, because there are all kinds of political campaigns that people will engage on Facebook. And it seems like for the smaller elections or the more local or state-based elections, uh, it might be really impossible to tell and perhaps difficult to regulate. Um, I don't know if that's what you meant when you said you can't, you can't ban. Yeah, but I'm not going to let you get away with this yet, Sarah, because I just feel like, and uh, I I think this is really important, and I don't know where you're going to come out on this, but that I... I did not laugh when when uh, we suggested that Italy should ban chat GPT. <laughs> um, not because I know that it's well-crafted legislation, but because I think it's important that people feel a sense of authority over technologies and the ability to, to regulate them. And when we have dangerous um, mechanisms, including, say, um, you know, bias in housing. Yeah, there's a massive problems in actually enforcing that, but we still decide it's worth it to try to do it. And the suggestion that a private company is wonderfully figuring out how to ban something, and we don't laugh at that, but we do sort of mock the the uh, states trying to regulate. I, I, I want to tease out whether there's a real difference here. Um, I get that there's a challenge in enforcement because I, what I don't want to do um, and uh, is suggest that we can um, sort of celebrate um, private actor action that we would mock if it were state action. Does that does that make sense? And I, I don't think you disagree with me. <laughs> I don't disagree. No, no, no. Yeah. I guess what I was what I was laughing at in the, and, and, and I guess being dismissive about in the Italy context is that I'm not saying that you could, I think it would be difficult to ban chat GPT. I guess my broader point was generative, you, you know, what about the thousands of other generative AI tools? I mean, I think in some ways my derision was targeting the fact that they focus on this big actor, but meanwhile, there are all these thousands of other smaller it's a little bit like there's a, a, a rabbit hole, but the GDPR, the data protection in Europe, mm-hmm. right? 
really only, it mostly hurt the smaller companies because Facebook has this huge apparatus and was sort of preferentially less distrusted than these smaller actors. My point was that it's easy to focus on kind of the boogeyman of the the, the thing that you know, but meanwhile, uh, Italian citizens could use other things. Is it fair then to say that you also think we should focus on the particular functions, not obviously the companies? And I think they're, you know, just to pull that out, that the function of maybe you can define generative AI in a way that um, you can functionally describe it and ban it in certain contexts, such as advertising, as opposed to entities. Is that fair? That is fair. Okay. I do think there's a question, you know, when we... Think of, you know, there have been debates in the U.S. about banning TikTok. I think there is a way, but that's different because that's an actual platform and and ChatGPT. I mean, there are apps, but it is, these are, I think, apples and oranges. But I do think there's a, that there is a question of whether if the U.S. really wanted to ban TikTok, how that, the mechanics of how that would be done. And I think that's also where this Brookings piece was trying to latch on to, which is that what is feasible, what is prudent, what's actually even feasible? And I think outright bans on on software, things like this are really an uphill battle. Well, let's use TikTok using the, the, the Kreps method, right? So if we use the Kreps method and assume that TikTok starts uh, um, unleashing uh, generative AI and its content, if it hasn't already, has it? I, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't know. <laughs> um, then one might isolate the particular harms. One concerned harm is foreign ownership, right? And so one can um, either pass or enforce existing limits on foreign ownership. That isn't a banning of a industry. And another is certain uses of PII, you know, personally identifiable information and delivering content. So would that be a Kreps method? Not, I'm not asking you to endorse either of those, but that to sort of look at traditional mechanisms of regulation, um, both non-discrimination and ownership limits or traditional mechanisms of regulation and focus on those as opposed to say AI or TikTok. Is that do, do I have the Krebs method down? <laughs> you do, right. And so, you know, when, uh, and I teach cybersecurity at, at Cornell uh, Law School. And so one of the things we do talk about a lot are the differences between kind of these federal regulations and laws and the state laws. And so actually on deep fakes, um, and it's, a, it's sort of a circular question of whether the federal level has not addressed privacy and deep fakes, but this, because the states have, or whether the states are doing it because the federal hasn't. But anyway, but the states have been very active in this space of banning deep fakes, particularly ones that are kind of incriminating. And so I think that's where we would turn for this method, which is we have a deep fake. And actually, then this comes back to a question uh, that Julie had touched on, which is that I think it's easier in a way to to use a deep fake in a less prominent political context, which actually happened last spring. There was a Chicago mayoral deep fake where one campaign had run a deep fake uh, using the other's voice and and 
no one had been able to uh, actually identify this as a deep fake because these, you know, everyone could quickly figure out that the Tom Cruise deep fake or the Nancy Pelosi deep fake right. is because we're very familiar with these. Right. I actually think that the much more insidious problematic cases are the more local levels where people don't have that image of the person in mind. So they're not going to be able to discern these very nuanced differences in like someone's eyebrow movement or the Joe Biden case. Um, and, and so, but those are difficult questions. And I think that's where these platforms maybe do have a role to play, which is that Facebook has said they will not allow those kinds of ads to run. Uh, so the campaign might try to generate those ads, but Facebook has said that they will not actually permit those. Ads so, but but using the Krebs method, I would probably focus on liability, not self-regulation. I would say, right, okay, carrying deepfakes liable if you don't adequately regulate against that. Actually, I was wondering um, if we could just get into some of the bills and proposals. Uh, you did mention in passing in your um, Brookings piece uh, that many of them would be subject to litigation and challenges perhaps for constitutionality or other grounds. Um, so I wanted to just get into, and you had mentioned part of your, what Zephyr is calling the Krebs method, uh, would uh, begin by looking at existing regulations. Uh, and you had mentioned privacy as one frame. Uh, I don't know if fraud or criminal fraud is another frame for getting at some of these problems. But I was just wondering if we could just get on the table the existing regulations that would deal with some of the problems you identified. Yeah. One of the big ones that actually has come up in the context of TikTok is is the First Amendment, free speech. And that, I think, is the one that TikTok lawyers are trying to use. To challenge any efforts to regulate it. Mm -hmm, exactly. Right. And so I think that, you know, in the cases we cover in my class, uh, free speech has often held a lot of sway in debates about what's permissible online. Uh, so and I think we're still grappling with these with these questions. I mean, every day is how what is that line yeah. between, yeah, free speech and, and harm to others? And I think that's I th also where this where kind of our priors on this piece really do come in, which is that technology is so dynamic. And so what we want is a, a set of regulations that's going to stand the test of time, not just for today's technology, but 10 years from now when the technology might look very different. So we are getting to the end of our time, and I wanted to just give you a chance uh, to maybe make some final uh, remarks about the threats to democracy and the direction that you see us going in uh, with regard to it's it's obvious that policymakers are on this uh, and trying to gather uh, approaches. And I wondered what you think is going to happen in the future, what you would recommend uh, in terms of uh, a clearer application of the approach that we've been talking about. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, your questions, both of you have been uh, outstanding and I appreciate being pushed on them because it has helped me clarify some of the things I've been thinking about. And where I guess I would want to just kind of take a, a little a step back and say that, yes, I started this line of research from this perspective of threats to democracy. And I, I stand behind the fact that those are are real uh, I'm of the view, though, that they're also very dynamic. One thing we haven't really talked as as much about is 
is the role of the, the public. And I think there really is a role for the public to try to stay on top of its digital literacy to try to continue to understand how is technology evolving in a way that is confronting them with new challenges. Because I think that they're they're an important actor in all this. It's not just the government. It's not these just the private firms that are innovating. It's the, the public that is consuming this content. And it really is incumbent upon them to continue to stay up to date on what these new technologies are able to create how that might intersect with their role in a participatory democracy and how they can guard against some of those threats. So how do we do that? How in, uh, whether you're in the Hudson Valley or in the Central Valley, <laughs> California, and your main focus is ag policy and what's happening at your kid's school, and you see an executive order float by the top of the news. Um, but, but your Congress members are working on this now, and your state, state houses are working on it now. What does it mean for the public to stay up to speed on the specific threats, not the generalized threats, the specific threats and legislative responses? Yeah, I was just in New York on Friday and a uh, former member uh, of Congress, Steve Israel, was there and he was reminding us that members of Congress are mostly interested in kind of the day-to-day, you know, pocketbook issues of Americans. And that's what we're most concerned about. So, of course, that's what we're going to stay up to date on. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's just a matter of the public you know, and the one that caught me most off guard, I'll, I'll admit, was the uh, the Pope and the puffy coat um, about a year ago, where he came out in this like Balenciaga coat, and I was like, "Wow, he's so fashionable!" And then, you know, only later <laughs> right. realized that this was like a deep fake. And so, I think the important thing is not to not trust anything, but just to be kind of on our guard and 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 to do some judicious fact checking not just on the content we read, but also to try to stay, you know, civic-minded as what is going on in the public policy space that might affect our elections. I know that's a lot to ask, but but to yeah. the extent that, yeah, but that people can be trying to, you know, when they hear ChatGPT, be thinking about it, not just as how it affects their kids' assignments, but how might this be affecting my my democracy and what can I do about it? It's so interesting. The group of people that I spend a, a lot of time with farmers, their big focus is AI. So in some ways, the closer you get to any industrial policy, there's a AI concerns within media, but there's also a lot of AI concerns with uh, small producers and their relationship to their own platforms. It's a different kind of platform than, say, TikTok or Facebook. But the purchasers, distributors to whom they sell and their use of AI in pricing. And are they worried about it or do they use worried. it to their Very benefit? Worried. Okay, okay. Right. No, and also using it, right, and, which is, I think, a typical, <laughs> typical posture but worried about the ways in which it exacerbates information asymmetries mm -hmm. because the information is collected by the distributor and then used to differentially price. I don't mean to take us down this channel, but what I mean to say is it's a great example, I think, of how your approach helps us because a chat GPT approach doesn't tell us too much about 
how to think about farming and distributors. It's a very particularized sectoral question. Right, and right. so 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 that I think it's very helpful to imagine and and to feel empowered in this space. There's many things that I think are super insightful about your approach, but one is that it creates a mechanism of empowerment. Hmm. I like that. And I might just kind of layer onto that, that this idea that one size doesn't fit all. So your example also brought to mind kind of the use of AI in energy efficiency. Oh, interesting. I would hate to overregulate AI to the point that we can't use it to produce more green, kind of climate-friendly energy usage through AI, because that to me seems like a really beneficial way of using AI. So I think this maybe upshot here is that we don't want to be painting AI with too broad a brush and that in public policy, we always need to be trading off kind of the good and the bad. And how are we trying to create the most good for the most people? Absolutely. So I think that your approach that we break all the different harms down uh, and certainly look at the potential for innovation as well as the potential for harm uh, and for that to come into uh, the regulatory direction moving forward. I think those are really important insights and I think we'll be thinking about them with regard to democracy for a long time. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah Kreps. This has been a really fascinating and important conversation. And we're really grateful to you for taking the time with us. Well, thank you for having me. We'd also like to thank uh, Fordham Law School, especially Dean Matthew Diller and Associate Deans Joe Landau and Young Jay Lee for supporting this podcast. And we're so grateful to our producers, Melody Rowell and Bill Pollock at Yellow Armadillo Studios for going above and beyond today and always to make this podcast happen. The Music for Democracy's Future is Climbing by Chad Crouch, also known as Podington Bear. And special thanks to Rob Yasharian at Fordham Law School for designing the new logo. Please subscribe to Democracy's Future wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much and see you next time.